Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. A recent debate that took place on Justin Brierley's show, Unbelievable, between Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. James White regarding the different theories of soteriology, that being Calvinism and Molinism, has garnered a lot of attention. And on today's show, we're going to be reviewing a lot of the parts of that debate and playing clips for you guys as we discuss the places where we may agree or disagree with the two debaters. And with me today to discuss this is none other than the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. Chad, I am so excited about getting into this topic because this topic uh, gives us an opportunity to give maximum glory to our Father in heaven, to the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and show who he is because it's our conviction and it breaks our hearts because we recognize uh, Calvinists as brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are truly trusting in Jesus. But uh, it is also our strong conviction that uh, their view of God is far weaker than the biblical view of God. In Calvinism, which lends itself to what we're going to be talking about in this debate, God can't know everything that could happen uh, as far as uh, anything that's freely done. He's not strong enough, not not wise enough, not omniscient enough to know what people would freely choose. It'd be a dangerous thing for him. So Calvinism teaches a weak view of God, and also, you know, by blaming everything that is evil that is done on his decree and saying he decreed it and people can't do anything but that which they decree because God can't know the future unless he decrees that every evil thing then is fastened to God and it besmirches and destroys his holy character, which is also unbiblical. So I'm looking forward to getting into this because a lot of Calvinists have been deceived into thinking, oh, we have such a high view of God. When you look at it, they basically have the same God in principle as the open theist. Who they who they whine about being you know giving a lesser view of God? I'm like, and we're gonna get into it. You're actually teaching the same view of God as the Calvin as as the, the open theist because and we're gonna see how that ferrets out. We're gonna ferret out, see how that that lands there. But it's a very weak view of God, Calvinism. Yeah, no, and I I think the important thing too, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this just to lay the groundwork because we do have a ton of clips to go through. So uh, we're not doing our normal job of making sure we keep this within an hour, an hour and a half. We're actually just gonna go through the clips. And we're going to exegete different texts and talk about what happened in those clips so that people can have a good understanding of what happened in the debate. But I do want to give some points on both sides. And I know for Joe and myself, we both love watching debates. It's a it's a pastime of ours, I would say. And I know for myself, in terms of William Lane Craig, we have things that we staunchly disagree with him on. Uh, Recently, the stuff he did on the historical Adam and so forth and and, you know, uh, hanging out with Bishop Barron and so forth and doing things with Catholicism. Obviously, we disagree with that. And then James White, we would have places where we completely agree with him, right? When he comes out against King James onlyism, when he teaches against Islam and so forth. So we Culture have some, wars, cults, yeah. Oh, 100%. There's, and there's and we were like, hey, these are these are big. And I've watched a number of their both their debates. I don't even know how many. Uh, I've watched most of them, in, in all honesty, that they've taken part in. So for me, watching this one and knowing a little bit of their tactics in terms of how they debate, um, immediately from the onset, and I know we talked about, hey, did you check this out? Let's Let's both watch this. And I said... I mean, from the onset, it looked as though 
that James White couldn't keep to the topic in terms of what it was supposed to be. Because the topic at hand was supposed to be if your position was true, if Calvinism was true or if Molinism was true. And I want to get into what that actually means. If Calvinism is true or Molinism is true, which one gives a better answer for the problem of evil? And you can see why James White wouldn't want to stay there because implicitly their doctrine is that God is basically the author of evil, even though they say, oh, well, it's secondary causes and it's not puppet strings. And when you look at it, it's based on his decree. People could not choose to do other than that which they actually do based on God's decree. And then they're, well... We'll get into it. It's just horrifying when you think about what they're actually teaching. Yeah, and and we have a, a ton of clips that we're going to go through, so we'll get be able to dig into some of the things, and you can hear their defenses as well. You're going to hear James's defense on these topics, and we'll see what lines up, basically. Yeah. But I guess the first thing, and this is something that I do think, even though James, I believe, was going outside of the pale of what the debate was supposed to be, but those are the things that are going to get the amens from his crowd. These are the things that are going to get the, well, you lost the debate as soon as you said this, William Lane Craig. If somebody was on James's side going into that, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Molina himself was a Jesuit priest, and the, the fact that this thing, he would say over, over and over again, this doesn't derive from Scripture, this just comes from Molina 1,500 years later and so forth, but... Before we we were going to go over the scriptures on that, so I don't want to dig too deep into that. Yeah, but just irony, though, understand, irony, yeah. just to say again, the yeah. irony is that, yeah, Molina is a Jesuit priest, and we don't follow Molina, but <laughs> Augustine, the first, you know, Calvin himself said, if I was to systemize all my doctrine, he said this, I think, in the Institutes, uh, he, he would basically take Augustine's teachings and he put them together. So it's very, very interesting that both these theological or soteriological constructs have their basis in Roman Catholicism. Yet we go before Roman Catholicism, get a more pure stream in the scripture itself, which we'll go to. Yeah, and I think that's the most important thing. And so we're going to be playing a clip here, and this is the first clip we're going to start with. But it kind of lays out so you guys can see, as William Lane Craig will point out to the question at hand that James begins to ask here, that it looks as though James is not staying to the topic at hand, but he does give a little pot shots a lot of times when you'll see some of the stream of his questioning when he comes back at William Lane Craig. So let's play that clip, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Right? I mean, you, you do admit that you've said that there are certain people that in no feasible world can they be saved, right? That was a hypothesis to deal with the problem of the exclusivity of salvation through Christ. But James, if we start down that road, we're going to go into a black hole and, and never finish. The, the, the <laughs> thing about Molinism is That's that it is extremely fruitful theologically. And I have applied it to the exclusivity of salvation through Christ, to the problem of perseverance of the saints, uh, and to, to the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, it is an extremely fecund source of theological insight for the one who who uses it, but we can't talk about those things today. The problem of evil is the one that's on the table today. And it seems to me that a view that allows for human freedom to do evil is much more plausible than a view that says God universally and unilaterally determines creatures to do evil. And now one of the reasons we want to play that clip, Joe, before we actually play James's clip of kind of answering this, you know, you know, getting upset that you're saying God is the author of evil. I'm not saying that. And we're going to let him kind of try to speak that out. But one of the reasons I wanted to play that clip is because, hey, we said, hey, we want to make sure when we look at these, we're seeing the topic of the debate seemed like it was going off the rails a little bit. And right there, you can see him. Hey, the topic that's at the table here is a problem of evil. 
And when it comes to just that question and what the debate was supposed to be about, it seems like the the case there that it's more plausible that God is not the author of evil, but that that men do have free choices to make, that that's more plausible than, obviously, um, Calvinism. Right. And then to understand, uh, for those of you who are familiar with, uh, not familiar with Molinism or even Calvinism, uh, to understand the debate here is that Calvinism believes, consistent Calvinism, John Calvin himself, believes that even the wicked, I have his book on predestination. I marked that thing up so much because I thought at times I was like, is this guy trying to make God look evil? Because over and over again, he says things like God, even the wicked thoughts of men, they're predetermined by God. So a, a man has a thought that he acts upon. His thought and his act is predetermined before he's created that he's going to have to act this way. And Calvin states that over and over again. And uh, the Calvinistic you know, view of, of God's providence is that everything that takes place can only take place because God's decreed it. Even the, you know, the, the, the smallest particle, you know, uh, and where a, a piece of dust lands and so forth, uh, which we do believe in meticulous providence, but not when it comes to moral evil. Uh, we believe that it's God's meticulous and that he foreknows everything that everybody will choose. He makes a choice whether to permit it or not, and will these things that he allows to happen achieve his ultimate glory and his ultimate end in having a bride that loves him in the end? Uh, so our view or our viewpoint with, and I'm kind of going to give kind of a, a you know a couple of viewpoints and where we fall within these viewpoints because you really need to understand this so you understand where they're coming from. So uh, James White and Calvinists will say that everything that somebody does, even every little evil thing that they do, they couldn't have done otherwise because it was determined by God that they had to do this and God had to determine it because uh, otherwise he couldn't know if God gave them true libertarian free will. They could choose the choose differently than what God has actually predetermined what they do, and it could throw his whole plan off. And that shows a weak view of God. First of all, he can't know what somebody would freely do, so he can't create a world in which people freely choose to bring him bring to pass those things that he orchestrates in such a way where they freely choose to do this or that, where he brings glory in the end. He's not powerful enough to do that. And we'll see that from James White himself saying that over and over again. Calvin said that uh, over and over again, R.C. Sproul and others, that God really can't know the future if people are genuinely uh, free. So therefore, they're left with a God who writes a script, who blames everybody for doing evil when they do it, even though he's predetermined them to do it. And even though they've done exactly what he predetermined, in fact, if they did something good or righteous, that would be going off the script. And then he wouldn't be surprised because they actually do what he's absolutely, by unilateral divine agency, and causation, whether it's second, secondary, which we'll get into that a little bit, compatibilism, he's still causing them to do it. They couldn't do anything, but he warns them not to, but then they do the very thing he's predetermined. And he says, yes, of course you have to do that. But then he blames them for doing the thing they had nothing, no other choice, but ultimately to do. And then he burns them for eternity for obeying his sovereign decree, which they couldn't disobey anyway. And then he says he's just, that is not the biblical God. And if you're a Calvinist, I love you, man, but you gotta be honest. If I said that about my wife, you know, yeah, she's actually blaming people for doing evil, but she's making them do it. And, and you know, she's done this with our grandkids, you know, and, and she's actually programmed them uh, with, 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 or, you know, use some kind of software to where they're doing evil, but then she blames them for the evil she's, they're doing. I mean, how would that hold up in a court of law? It wouldn't. And the sad thing is, is that's not the biblical view of God. That's a, that's a twisted character. In fact, Wes, Wesley, you know, would say John Wesley, um, one of the most effective and fruitful 
uh, evangelist ever, and he was quite a theologian as well, is Wesley, uh, he said, this turns, this makes God the devil. He says, you know what? The Bible says God doesn't even tempt men to do evil, but Satan does. But this makes God worse than the devil because the devil just tempts, but God's actually predetermining that they do these evil things. And even, you know, not in this debate, but William Craig says actually Calvinism turns God into the devil. No, and, and it's really important to to ferret these things out because what we believe and what we how we view God is going to have an effect on how we react with one another. It's going to have an effect with our prayer life, have an effect when we're reading the scriptures, and who ultimately we view God as. And so we want to give James White here a chance to—we're uh, going to play this clip right here. And this is kind of his argumentation uh, against the idea that God is the author of evil. Why do you disagree fundamentally that, that God is effectively the author of evil in this? Well, well, and that's, that's what I keep saying. He keeps saying that, that God is moving people's wills to do things. He is restraining evil. God is not sitting. We aren't a bunch of innocent individuals and God's putting his gun in his back of our hand going, go do evil things. That, that, no, nowhere has that, has that been, been even hinted at. Well, now, now, Joe, I think there's a lot of problems there um, with his viewpoint. Speaking out two sides of his mouth, man, that was cake and eating it too, which isn't going to work. But yeah, the, the main issue is, first and foremost, before we get into the gun idea even, uh, the idea that they are fallen, right? And so they wouldn't do otherwise, right? Or I think it's R.C. Sproul says their wanter is broken and, and so forth. And, the, and these these ways that they would put it, to the idea that they're fallen, which is a true statement. We, we do fall uh, from Adam's fall. But this idea that they were they have this fall, but then we don't recognize where that came from yeah. or the desires that it came from and who gave them those desires That's to right. do it. I mean, really, like you said, two, it seems like he's speaking out two sides of his mouth. Well, he is, and we'll see that later when it comes to uh, the child rape thing you talked about. Uh, it, it gets really disgusting when you think about it. And, and my heart in prayer is that he would give up the traditions of Calvinism, Augustinianism, that came from Gnosticism, which is not the, the heartbeat of the Scripture, and, and adopt strict Biblicism. You don't have to strip, accept Molinism or Calvinism. You can just be a Biblicist. Uh, his idea that, uh, I mean, he throws out later in the debate, he talks about, you know, well, there's philosophical ideas to where these are secondary causes and God isn't, you know, specifically predetermining this as a direct cause, but there's secondary causes. And he talks about uh, Jonathan Edwards, who a lot of Calvinists think is a theological giant. Uh, the reason they say that is because he agrees with their thinking. I look at his writing, and it's just, it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking because he's trying to paint God and justify God as predestined us to do evil, but with secondary causes, causing it's called compatibilism. And uh, many compatibilists, they look back to Jonathan Edwards, and that's the idea. Well, you know, God didn't really predetermine you to do evil. Yeah, he did predetermine you to do evil, but it's really your fault because, you see, he, he gets you to act on your highest desire. So, for instance, a child rapist is God is having them act on their highest desire to get them to do what he predetermines them to do. But what they don't say is, how does that work? God is the one that predetermines your highest desire. So to get people to do things, God predetermines what, predetermines what their highest desire will be to make sure they do this. And uh, that is still divine determinism at its highest level because, I mean, you're just one step removed. So uh, let's say somebody said, to you, I, didn't, I didn't like rape that child. You know, it wasn't direct, but you programmed a robot to do it. Well, that's still a direct cause. 
Well, you programmed a robot to program another robot to do it. You just get steps away. You're still the one that is the cause. And ultimately, they're going to say that, yeah, God's basically predetermined everything, even moral evil that's taken place. And people, they Calvinists will state, consistent Calvinists, that, yeah, you couldn't choose to do other than that which you've done because that was decreed by God. And that makes God the author of evil. That makes God evil. And that's not the biblical God. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And the whole idea of holding a gun to someone's head, it's, it's interesting because we're talking about taking someone's will away. The fact is, it's if, some, hold on, at least that's they exactly to get right. Shot in the head still. Yeah, the fact is, is that if somebody has a, a gun to someone's head, right, and they're doing something that is against their will, yeah. the reality is, is that when it comes to this analogy that he's trying to use here, the fact is, is that God is the one who gave them the will, I guess, to be that way, to be captured by the person holding the gun as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that a gun is being held to their head so that they would do something, but actually the, the very desire to have that gun held to their head as well. It's very interesting, and it really, it just spirals down. But we want to, as we said, we don't want to make caricatures. We want to look at these things and say, well, here is what you've said publicly. And in this debate, and we're going to play these clips, not back-to-back, but pretty much back-to-back, because you're going to hear, and I want you to listen to the wordage here in this clip. That's why events in time have meaning. Why is that? And that he's going to give the reform perspective here in this clip. From the reform perspective, um, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith very clearly says that, that God foreordains decrees whatsoever comes to pass in time and then immediately discusses uh, the, the issue of the will of man and, and everything that flows from that. But first and foremost is the decree of God, that God not only is the creator of all things, but because he is the creator of all things, then he is the one who has determined the very fabric of time. And that's why events in time have meaning. That's why something like the incarnation can have meaning. And evil has meaning because Christ has to come to deal with this issue. And so it has meaning. And that means the decree of God is not something that results in mankind being mere puppets. Instead, that decree is what makes events in time meaningful. But the real question is, where is the source of this decree? And the emphasis of the scriptures is there's a particular a couple particular terms are used, but in Ephesians chapter one, we're told that this is according to the eudakia of his will, the good, kind intention, that which is pleasing to him. And it's interesting that that's about salvation. But then later on in, uh, in that same chapter, when Paul talks about working all things according to the counsel of his will, that's the decision of his will that has worked all things out. And so the reformed perspective on the existence of evil has to take into consideration the fact that <coughs> God is glorifying himself in all that he has created. So he is demonstrating the full range of his attributes. So yes, there's the negative in dealing with judgment, in dealing with evil, his power, his justice, his holiness, and the positive, his grace, his love, and his mercy. These things are all being demonstrated in his decree, in the creation that he is that he has made. Now, a reason why I wanted to play that clip, because that clip specifically doesn't deal with details, right? It just talks about all events in time now have meaning. And so I wanted and to play that clip. And they've all been decreed. And they've all been decreed. According to the Westminster Confession, right? Ordained, yes. 
so now I want, and, and we want you guys, Joe, Joe was like, we got to have this clip. And I know we talked about this, that a lot of times with James, he gets really upset when people bring this up, even though this is public. This is on I would debate. be upset too, man. You should have been ashamed of saying it. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. And what you have to hear here is that the fact that when it comes to what was stated in the previous clip on the reform perspective, this is now the logical conclusion of those events when we actually talk about them in uh, specificity. Let me answer that with a question. Let me ask you this question, and this will put it into perspective to show the difference. When a child is raped, is God responsible, and did he decree that rape? If he didn't, then that rape is a, a, an element of meaningless evil that has no purpose. What I'm trying to point out by going to Scripture... So what is Scripture, your answer there? Because I, I want to understand the answer I'm, to that question. I'm trying to go to Scripture to answer the Yes, but the what reason, is the answer to the question that the, he just asked the, so that we can understand what the answer is? I, I, I mentioned to him, yes, because if not, then it's meaningless and purposeless, and though God knew it was going to happen, he created without a purpose. And that I've, means God brought the evil into existence, knowing it was going to exist, but for no purpose, no redemption, nothing positive, nothing good. So he did decree it, and if he decreed it, then there's then meaning he, to it. It has meaning, it has purpose. Got it. Suffering, all suffering has purpose. Everything in this world has purpose. There is no basis for despair. But if we believe that God created, knowing all this was going to happen, but with no decree, he just created and all this evil's out there and there's no purpose, then every rape, every situation like that is nothing but purposeless evil, and God is responsible for the creation of despair. And I, 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 that I, is not, not, as, that is not what I believe. For years I've been trying to figure out why it is that in order for rape to exist, um, or unless God caused it to happen, there can't be any purpose in it. God can use evil, and he does. But to blame God, which is what a decree does, to blame God for the rape of a child is a horrible um, attack on the very character and the about, love of God. Amen. Yeah, I think one of the big things there, when, when, we're, when we're hearing that, right, all, all the things taking place, first of all, you hear the, obviously, either-or fallacy taking place, right? Yeah, he created a false dichotomy. It's and James Way's too bright to know that he's not bamboozling people with that. I'm sorry. When I hear him at times, I'm sorry. There's an element of dishonesty at times. It's like James knows that uh, God, if God didn't decree something and he allowed it to come to pass within his permissive will, uh, that the scriptures are very, very clear that God has a purpose in allowing evil to take place. So for him to feign ignorance that that the, it's either one or the other either god predetermined it and was the author of eat that evil and actually decreed that that guy had to rape that kid at, because he wanted to be meaningful which is disgusting by the way I like oh then you can comfort them in that i'm sorry that you know uh this i had this person rape you and i decreed that they had to rape you they had no choice but to rape you but doesn't make you feel better that there's meaning in that in me having that person rape you that's disgusting man and i'm like where's your mind got to be out to actually you know, and I, I, per, I, you know, strongly believe, and I feel bad for him and other Calvinists because he's under a strong tradition of men, and he's defending this tradition to the point where he's contradicting the heart of God, the power of God, the Scripture. Again, we 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 hold not to Calvinism or Molinism; we hold to Biblicism. And what does the Scripture say? Uh, let me quote here, Jeremiah chapter seven, okay, uh, in verse thirty-one. There, the Israelites are sacrificing their children to false gods the Topheth, to Baal, and they're sacrificing them in the fires, horrifying. Well, according to James White, God predetermined that they would do this. They had no other choice but to do it uh, because just like the child rapist, you know. Uh, well, look what the Lord God says 
They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command and did not and did not and did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. It becomes a garbage dump, right? And this justifies God's, now if God decreed it, it'd be exactly what God wanted them to do. How could he be punished them? Because they did exactly what he did. There'd be no praise, there'd be no demerit because they're basically fastened to this decree. Uh, but he wouldn't be slaughtering them, blaming them for doing that, which he says they shouldn't have done. It didn't even come into my, my mind. And we see that as well. Several chapters later in chapter 19, we read in verse five, and they have built the high places of Baal or Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Wow, man. And in fact, it's kind of interesting, the Calvinistic translation, the ESV actually says, which I never decreed. Yeah. Wow, I'm glad that I'm, that's good. You, my Calvinist brothers that translated that actually said, yeah, that's not coming to his mind. It's not something he decreed. But according to James White, that was decreed, uh, contradicting the word of God. That's why I say we've got to stay with biblicism instead of a theological construct that's built on Augustine's teachings, who was basically reverting back to his Gnosticism. So I think it's important that we understand when we when we look at this that we're talking about a child rapist. You're talking about all the thousands or millions of child molestations that are going on are all basically <coughs> decreeing them. And that's even, you know, well, he says, someone has to be, well, I'm not saying that God's a puppeteer. Well, yeah, you are. Well, I mean, at least a puppeteer, the streams might break. Okay, with God, this decree is fixed. And it's, 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 it's going to take place one way or another, everything that he's decreed. And it turns God into a moral monster is what it does. No, and, and it, this is why we do care about this, because the ramifications of your theology are, are very, very clear when you see things like that. And, and it's and it's heartbreaking and it's sad. And not that I, I believe that every Calvinist would give these sort of guidance, but you have to wonder those desires that maybe a determinist might have when they're looking at pornography and so forth, you know, the day before maybe they went to preach a sermon. I've known plenty of pastors uh, who, that have fallen and said, I was on porn, I was drinking, I was doing these these things. And over and over again, you're like, that's precisely what God willed for them to do. In rather Calvinism, than the reality, yeah. Calvinism, yeah. Rather than the reality uh, that, no, he did not uh, will yeah. for them to do that. So I, I want to also play some clips from William Lane Craig as well, talking about the position that he holds to known as Molinism. Um, and in this clip specifically, uh, he's going to talk about where the differences really lie when it comes to answering the moral problem of evil right here. But it seems to me that the real difference emerges with respect to moral evil. That is to say the sinful acts of human beings. What Molinism holds is that since human beings have genuine moral freedom to make choices, um, God knowing how they would choose in various circumstances allows them to make sinful decisions that he does not directly will. So by God's absolute will, he wills everything good. In every moral situation, God wills that a person do the right thing. But he knows that in many cases people would not do the right thing. They would choose to do evil. And so he permits them to do that evil 
with a view toward achieving his ultimate purposes so that God's ultimate plan and providential purpose is achieved not by overriding human free will, but precisely through the free and sometimes sinful actions of human beings. And so I see this as being a vastly more plausible view of moral evil than the Calvinist view, which says that God moves the will of creatures to do evil um, and is therefore the cause of their evil acts. So, Joe, when it comes to those that statement, specifically when it deals with this issue, is there is there places of disagreement or agreement you have there? What, what would you have to say to add to that? Yeah, you know, a lot of what he stated would be very biblical. Uh, the Molinistic view, and the reason we don't call ourselves Molinists, uh, one of the one of the reasons there's more than one, uh, is the Molinist view does give a far better uh, Calvinism doesn't give a account for uh, doesn't account for how God is love and that God is good and there's no darkness in Him. And every good and perfect gift comes from him because they also have God. The Bible says God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. And when you see how the Bible describes darkness, Calvinism has God doing, having people do some very dark things. So it doesn't account for God's holy and righteous and loving character. It doesn't account for God's power, which I'll get into in a moment now. But uh, in Molinism, uh, and I'll try to just make it succinct, uh, my understanding of Molinism is that uh, you know before God decrees to create this universe and this world and humanity, uh, that he has, you know, natural knowledge. He's just he's all knowing, but he also has middle knowledge, and he uses his middle knowledge in the sense that he can actualize any of almost an you know an infinite amount of worlds, and he looks at every world that he could uh, can can create, along with the people that he's going to create to populate it to achieve his goal, and he looks at all these different worlds and says, what's the best world for me to create to achieve my goals of of creating the people who can responsibly love me back or not love me, and then I can judge them based on, uh, you know, what they choose, but how can I get as many people saved to freely choose to love me? See, what it's trying to do is is show that God is still all-powerful, and he actualizes the world when he makes a decree, so this middle knowledge comes before God's decree, and then he sees what world he wants to create, then he decrees that world into being, and then he actively, you know, enters into the time-space continuum and uh, begins to uh, bring the message of salvation and so forth to humanity. Uh, the, where we would agree and where we, we would say we might disagree, and when I say might, we're not given details about how God's done this. He says his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So as soon as we start saying this is how he did it, and we put an exclamation point at the end of that sentence, and we say, this, I'm a Molinist and this is how he did it, we don't know for sure. God is so powerful, so wise, uh, and while that gives a good account for showing that God is sovereign, showing that he predestines things based on what he freely people freely choose to do, and it's not God also also just creating the world and having simple foreknowledge that, oh, that's what person's going to do. Oh, that's what, no, God is already omniscient. So while it accounts for God's foreknowledge and it accounts for God's predestination, but also accounts for libertarian free will, where people are truly choosing what they would choose in that world, it gives a good account for everything in uh, the scripture in that sense, but uh, the problem, and, and, and Calvinism doesn't do that, right? But the difference we would have uh, is that, yeah, I would agree God is omniscient. So we would agree with Molinists and say, to the, in this point, we'd say, yeah, we disagree with Calvinists. Calvinists don't believe that God could know what people would freely choose to do without, he has to decree it. And that's a weak view of God. 
In fact, when I, I'll get back to Molinism in a second, where it gives an account saying, yeah, he knows what they would choose in any circumstance, right? Uh, the Molinist, or the Calvinist, has a very similar view of God as the open theist. Now, there's all kinds of books. I have some of them written by Calvinists against open theism. Open theism is that God is discovering, he's making guesses, and he knows some of the future because he's, he's wise, but he's not all-knowing about what people would freely choose to do because he can't know what people would freely choose to do in every instance. Therefore, uh, he, he, he discovers what they're doing in time. That's the open theist, you know? And the Calvinists say, that's such a weak view of God. And I turn around and say, yeah, that is. And I disagree with that. But you have the same view of God. And the Calvinist says, what do you mean? You have the same view of God because you don't believe your God is too puny to know what people would freely do in the future. You just have a different application of that God. The, the open theistic view of God is that he's just discovering. He's, in, he's in, in a mode of discovery. Your viewpoint is he would have to be in a view of discovery because he is that puny, but he predetermines and writes a script and makes sure people do these other things that he wants them to do because he couldn't know what they would freely choose to do. So they basically have the same view of God. That's astonishing to me. And that the Calvinists can't see that, that they have a weak view of God because our view of God is that God knows everything that anybody will ever do. And he knows all the contingencies. He knows all the counterfactuals that they might choose in a given circumstance that he creates. So yeah, well, you're saying God micromanages? Oh, he definitely micromanages some you know, uh, details and circumstances that people are in, but he doesn't micromanage your response. That's the difference between us and Calvin because he holds you accountable for your response because it's a very, very real response. Let me give some quotes from James White that illustrate, okay, very clearly that, you know, well, maybe we'll, get, we'll wait till he talks about yeah, how surprised he is about have, his own we have, a, we have a clip, actually, that expresses uh, this, this point of view. Because you may think, hey, come on, that's just a caricature. That God couldn't know these things unless he predetermined them. That's just a caricature that you're making up. But actually, before you even get into they quotes, let's hear that. what James White has to say on the subject. Well, there's a micromanaging on both sides. Um, and obviously, in looking at possible worlds, feasible worlds, uh, God ends up micromanaging all the circumstances that people are placed in. And that's why a lot of people uh, reject Molinism. Is It, it seems like a, a strange autonomy when you say that everyone's doing everything freely, except they've been put in a position where that's what they would do, and God knows they would do that. And many people would say, look, mankind is not nearly that simple. We don't exist as just this this thing floating in, in, uh, in, in ether that you know what it's going to do. We are made up of so many complex moving parts. And we sometimes surprise ourselves about what we do. Uh, I've surprised myself more than once by what I said or what I did in a situation. And so there's a lot of folks who would say, uh, how does God have this type of knowledge? So Joe, how can God have that type of knowledge? Because James White can't even have knowledge of what he's going to say because sometimes... He surprises himself. How can you know, God have that knowledge? A lot of people would say, you notice he's not appealing to scripture here. Yeah, I just, it's anthropocentric. Come on, James. Come on, that's a human view of God's. You're saying you're the reference as to what kind of knowledge God has? Because he's saying, I even surprised myself. In other words, if God was truly, if we were truly free, we would shock God with what we, we'd surprise him and he would not be sovereign. That's a weak view of God because he doesn't believe God can know what you would choose in a given circumstance unless God predetermines and makes you make every choice that you actually make, which and then blames you for it, then damns you for it, even though he made you make it. It's absolutely ridiculous. So, yeah, James is basically saying he's, you know, he, he, he can't show in Scripture where God can't, because we do believe that God knows everything that 
Everybody will choose and that people freely make choices and they're accountable and they don't surprise God because he is that wise, but he doesn't believe God is that wise. So what's his reference? Not the scripture, it's James White. I even surprised myself. You're not God though, James. James, his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are from the earth, we can't even get our brain around the universe because it's, it's bigger than we can even imagine and count the stars and everything else. That's the God who created us. It's an easy thing, I believe, for God to know exactly what everybody would do in any specific circumstance. Having said that, before I get into some quotes for James, where he basically says that God basically can't know the future unless he predetermines everything that happens because he's not that powerful. Uh, let me say this in regard to Molinism where we differ because I don't want to leave that hanging, is Molinism affirms that God you know, looked, previewed every single world he could possibly create pretty much and then picked the best of those worlds and said, I'm going to actualize this world uh, and then makes the decree. And then people, therefore, are plugged in with freedom to choose, but he knows what they're going to do in each world. But he says, I'm going to create this world because I know that I'm going to bring forth the death of my son, the crucifixion, the redemption of whosoever will and so forth. And that uh, whatever world he created, he creates this world because it's in this world where his hope that people would come to him and be saved and redeemed would be best actualized in its in its maximal uh, way because he's a maximal being and this is the world that achieves that goal. And you could put him in any other world and there's, you know, what Platenga talked about. Uh, Planiga, yeah. Planiga talked about in regard to, Planiga talked about trans world depravity. Whatever world, he's going to create these people because he's going to create them in such a way that they can uh, respond to him. So whatever world they are in, they it's a trans world depravity. They're going to be depraved in that, depraved in that world too. So Richard Dawkins, for instance, Adolf Hitler, for instance, uh, are not going to choose Christ in whatever world he creates. So that's their idea. And but we also believe, you know, that or they believe in what would be a trans world damnation. Many of many many of uh, many Molinists. But uh, what we would say is this: in response to that, we would say we agree because we believe that God is all knowing and He's infinitely wise. That He is omniscient. That He does know all things at once. Even. He doesn't learn a bunch of new things, you know? So we'd agree he knows all things at once. Where we would differ is to say he may have looked at billions and trillions of potential worlds and decided on this one. But we don't know that. He may have, because he is infinitely wise, said, this is the world I'm going to create because this is what I want to achieve because, and we do know the kind of world he created. So we don't know if he surveyed all these billions and trillions of possibilities, which is Molinism. I say, Ah, it could be that way, but we don't know. So I don't stamp my, you know, exclamation point at the end of that sentence. What we say is this, is that God, in his, in his love, because he's Trinitarian and, and he has this, you know, love relationship from eternity past, wants to share that love with his creatures. And he creates us in his image. So he, just, he wants an authentic love relationship with people that are not automatons, they're not puppets, they're those who can freely, who are made in his image, who uh, he knows are going to fall uh, because you're given a lot. You're not God, but you're given a lot of power. And because you're not God and you're a creature, you're not going to be able to handle that power. Everybody's just going to fall. But guess what? I'm going to love you so much. And the wickedness that you bring forth deserves eternal judgment. And I'm going to judge the world. But guess what? I want everybody to be saved. Whosoever will, not willing that any would perish. Will that all would come to repentance? Will that all be saved? Come to all truth. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Whosoever will, God to love the world. On and on and on. That's his heart, right? So that God, the one true God, because he wants authentic relationships. And if you're going to have an authentic relationship and someone that's going to love you back, they have to have the freedom of choice. They have to have libertarian free will. 
And as soon as you give them that, that necessitates choice. As soon as they're given choice, guess what they do? Guess what humans do? Just look at the history of humanity. Read your, read your Bible. Look at the news, man. They choose evil. So, But God, in the end, he says, I'm still going to create this world because this world that I'm deciding to create is the maximal world whereby I will get maximal glory because I will even use the pain and the suffering that comes through sin and so forth to shape the people that turned against me. I will use their wickedness by becoming a man. They'll pin me to the cross and nail me to the cross. But if you're in that act, I'll be expressing my love and paying for their sins as a vicarious substitutionary atonement whereby they will be able to receive forgiveness of sins. And then guess what? I'll have them for eternity to love and to love me as I'm loving them. We love him because he first loved us because his kindness leads us to repentance. We love him because he first loved us. Now in eternity, what kind of relationship is there? That's why I love, and we're in Revelation chapter 21, and uh, right now in our study through the book of Revelation, I love 21 and 22. I couldn't wait to get there because that's where the holy city comes down as a bride prepared for husband. That's been his objective the whole time, is to get a bride who would freely choose to love him and respond to his love that he would redeem. Now we go into eternity where you have a God who still has, who bears the holes in his hands, in his hands, in his feet, the scars probably on his face still, right? Marred more than any man. We see the God that loved us. And for him, he says, you know what? I'm going to do this. And, and we love him for eternity as the bride of Christ. You don't have, you couldn't, nobody could write down on a, on a sheet of paper, on a thousand sheets of paper, uh, a better redemption story than we already have. I, I defy anybody to come up with something that would be better. God's already done it. Now, does that mean he surveyed every possible world to say what would look best? We don't know that. So we're not molding us. What we say is what we see happen in Scripture. And because we believe he's a perfect being in all of his attributes, and he is a maximal being, that this is the maximal plan, whether you surveyed worlds or not. Yeah, amen. And that's one of the biggest things for us. And 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 actually, what James White says in these next clips that we'll be playing is, the, is very important and very true when it comes to any sort of view that we're going to have, whether it's philosophically, theologically, or so forth. It does need to be derived from Scripture. And that's the most important uh, fact that we need to recognize because we are dealing with philosophical argumentation and philosophical systems of thought. And so when we look at that, we have to recognize when you have revealed text and when you have scripture, that that outweighs anything that I'm going to at look at, even if it's natural theology, right. philosophy, and so forth. But it's yeah. got to be derived from scripture. Right. And before we get in, before we get into that, because that's going to be very important to get into, let's just talk about his tradition a little bit and how it shapes his view of scripture. Because what he is doing, he... I'm sorry, but James White is coming to the Scripture with a mindset, a, a, a traditional view, and he's interpreting it based on his idea, because I'm, I'll talk about this topic a little more that we've already been on, is that God doesn't know everything that people decide. He doesn't know anything that they decide on their own, really, so he predetermines it. These are quotes from James White where he says, quote, If God's foreknowledge is perfect, does it not follow that the future is, in fact, fixed? And it is fixed upon the basis and what what shape... Uh, and then he says, and if it is fixed, upon what basis did it take uh, shape that it took? Then he says also, if you think about it, if God really knows what man is going to do, foreknowledge, is man really free? Okay, these, these many of these quotes are from Debating Calvinism, a book uh, that where he debates Dave, uh, Dave Hunt. White also writes on page 168 of that same book, how can God know what these free creatures will do in the future if they are truly free? White adds, quote, how God, or how uh how God can know future events, for example, and, not and yet not determine them is an important point. So God really can't know future events unless he determines them. And it's important to know that because he's basically saying that God doesn't have the power 
to create libertarian free will beings and know what they're going to choose. Therefore, this is why everything's determined. And so when he makes a statement, keep in mind, when he's talking about appealing to Scripture, he's not appealing to Scripture just for Scripture's sake. He's saying, how can I take these Scriptures and fit them into my Calvinistic paradigm? Uh, so it's very, let me give you a couple other quotes. R.C. Sproul, right, one of the top Calvinists and what is Reformed Theology, page 172. Uh, he, he writes, uh, he knows all things will happen because he ordains everything that does happen. This is crucial to our understanding of God's omniscience. He does not know what will happen by virtue of exceedingly good guesswork about future events. He knows it with certainty because he has decreed it. Sproul says, does this mean that everything that happens is the will of God? Yes. He's even called God a cosmic rapist or used that quote. So they believe that everything is decreed by God and it happens based on his decree. And then he damns you for doing exactly what he decreed that you would do long before you ever existed. Yeah, and, and I know the, the reference you're talking about specifically is from his book, Thy Brother's Keeper, where he talks about, and I believe he says he's quoting Jonathan Edwards, by the way, uh, in saying that the holy rape of the soul, you know, and, and these are right. these are the things that we talk about. And we're like, yeah, those things probably make you queasy for a reason because most importantly, they're not scriptural. But yeah. we're going to be told here over and over again, which James is going to try to pull um, Mr. or Dr. Wayne Lane Craig to the carpet here on the fact that we need to make sure whatever our philosophy is, that it comes from Scripture. But the, the primary primary issue, and you said, where, where do I go when I hear this? First of all, we're asking the question, which gives the better answer? And coming as Christians, the answer to that is that which is in concert with and derived from what we have that the world doesn't have, and that is a divine revelation of Scripture. So it needs to be something that is taught by the apostles. It needs to be something that is consistent with their teaching, or we're going to have to admit that what we have in Scripture is insufficient to answer even the most basic questions. Whatever you do, if you take Scripture as the highest norm, as Jesus taught us to, then you have to norm everything else by that. As Christians, when we talk about plausibility, the, the real question for us should be, would the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, would the prophets, when they were speaking in Isaiah concerning the nature of God, we have something more than just simply philosophical plausibility arguments. We have the light of Scripture. Yes, and so of course. if there is going to be the assertion, as middle knowledge makes the assertion, that there are these true subjunctive conditionals that are the basis upon which God's decree is acted out, I think it is, quite, it is quite necessary for us as Christian theologians to say, from whence comes that which limits what God can do and how he can do it. Now, now Joe, before we even get into the, <laughs> the statements there, like which one, choose, from whence does it, do we get these things that limit God and what he can do when he just spent you know, we just listened to him spending time talking about what God can, God is limited in his knowledge, even yeah. uh, just like James White is. Um, but nonetheless, I want to play at least William Lane Craig's response to this idea before we dig into sure. the scriptural text. Well, I don't think that your theology or the Calvinist theology is derived directly from the text in that way. It seems to me that we're both trying to enunciate theological models that will make sense of the data of scripture. But the scripture nowhere teaches 
unilateral divine determinism of every human act, especially evil acts, uh, James. I mean, the Bible says God uh, is not evil and can't be tempted with evil, and yet on this view, it is God who moves the will of the creature to do sinful acts, and then he punishes them for it. Okay, um, so, 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 so you, I mean, it, it, if it's evil to cause someone to do evil, it makes God himself evil. You see, I, I think I wanted to play that because I, th- I do think he makes an important point. Yeah, one, absolutely. Uh, because the fact is, is that we're trying to deal with all the scriptural data and we're going to be going over clip by clip on three separate, I guess you would say proof text. And actually that's what uh, William Lane Craig calls them back to James White proof text that he was using. But just in the full tome of Scripture, with everything that we have, not just simply using a proof text here or there, um, it just seems that from the narrative of Scripture in God's character and who He is, it's far different than what we're hearing um, in a lot of the deterministic viewpoints here. Yeah, absolutely. So where, you know, we say we can't affirm Molinism is to say that God, you know, previewed these infinite amounts possibly of worlds. What we can say, though, is that what William Lane Craig is doing is what the early church fathers did as well, and it, this is early church teaching, is that there is free moral agency. There are There is libertarian free will. People are held responsible for their choices. And uh, to claim that, you know, you know that he's got the, the, the biblical high ground is insidious when you see what he's saying about the Lord. But right here, I mean, he's saying, if, well, where is this taught by the apostles? Well, how about the apostle Paul? The apostle of, of grace, uh, the apostle who spoke of predestination and so forth, which we believe in, but we don't believe it's uh, by unconditional election and God wanting to damn most people from all eternity to damnation uh, without a, a genuine uh, uh, grace given to them to respond to Christ's uh, work for them on the cross, the finished work on Calvary. Listen to what Paul writes to the Athenians when Paul's at Athens in, uh, in verse 24 of chapter 17. He says, the God who made the world and all that is in it, he's all powerful, right? He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's sovereign, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Verse 24, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Self-sufficient, right? Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and and all things. It's amazing, providence. Verse 26, but look at how his providence works in regard to salvation. And, And he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, so he micromanaged determined the time that you would be alive, and the boundaries of their habitation. He also planned on not only when you'd be born and we would be born, but where we would live as well. Well, what was his objective? Listen to verse 27. Critical. That they would, that they would seek God. That they would seek God. See, he was already seeking you even before you existed. He had planned for you. Right? He's already, he was already sending you into the world and he was going to draw you to himself by his grace. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared in all men. But in verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So what we do believe is that God does pick the most maximal world. But we're just saying we don't know these surveys all the other world because to me, God's so powerful. He doesn't have to look at billions of possible worlds. You know, I'm not saying to do it that way. Moralism could be true in that way. But to me, this is what God's heart was because he's already the maximal, maximally <coughs> perfect being. It's already his heart to create the world that he knows he needs to create. That's uh-huh. how I look at it. So that's, to me, that's even a step 
better than Molinism. And therefore, God actualizes this world. And then guess what? He plugs the people in it. These, free, these beings that have free moral agency can respond or not respond. Oh yeah, we're all dead in our sins without grace. And we agree with Calvinists that without grace, we wouldn't even come to him. But we believe that the grace of God that, that brings salvation is appeared to all men and that Jesus draws all men to himself, but not everybody responds because of libertarian free will. But notice here, that they, why does he place people at certain times in certain places around the world? That they would seek God, if perhaps that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, but he actually sovereignly works within his creation to bring people in situations whereby they will respond to his grace. And somebody will say, well, what about those people that have never seen? Well, Paul deals with that in Romans 10. In Romans 10, what about those who don't hear? He says, but they have. Then he quotes Psalm chapter 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And then he reveals in the Psalms, the psalmist, that those who fear God, who reveal his covenant to them. And that's exactly what God did in Acts 10 and 11 through a Peter as he gave visions and dreams to bring Peter to Cornelius, who didn't know God, who feared God, but God would make his covenant known to him, and he did. So God works throughout the earth, his eyes go to and fro, looking for those he could strengthen who would be fully committed to him. And he doesn't will that any would perish. So uh, the biblical account uh, makes it very, very clear, which it just destroys Calvinism. God's yeah. will of the world destroys Calvinism. Yeah, I think uh, maybe we can go over a few of the, the scriptures, you know, when you, when you think of God having this understanding of what, what we would call him. You know, we did an entire show on that, Joe, on counterfactual knowledge. And I know one of the texts that I think about, and I know you'll, you'll have some to bring out, you know, but is, you know, 1 Samuel 13, 13. You know, this is Samuel dealing with Saul, and he tells him this. A good one. But Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For the Lord would now have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Yeah. So God knows exactly what would have taken taken place if he had done otherwise. God has that sort of knowledge. That's what we're talking about here as well. And I know there's a number of texts. I love going also, and this is from a little different perspective, but this has to do with God being that 3D chess player, right? Yeah. Um, when I look at Romans chapter 9, when I see Jacob and Esau, when I see Pharaoh, when I see Jacob and Esau, I see Jacob as a person that would do anything. And God had full knowledge that he would do anything to go and get that blessing. And he knew that Esau would be the type that would sell it off for a Absolutely. cup of soup. And he knew that Pharaoh put in that position would ultimately be, God would be glorified by him over and over in every circumstance, hardening his own heart. Because he knew what kind of choices Pharaoh would freely make. He knew it all along. Right. Romans 9 says he raised him up for these purposes. I've often said that God would have plugged, if God wanted, you know, didn't want to did say, you know what, I'm not going to show my glory here and not show how I'm way more powerful than the gods of Egypt. But by the way, he did this so the Egyptians could know who the true God was. Mm -hmm. So they too could come to salvation. But it's interesting to me, if he wanted you know, Pharaoh to let him go right away, he would have just stuck Moses as Pharaoh. Because he was almost God on earth. He would have said, take him, Lord. I take him. You are the one true God. But he put Pharaoh there because he knew Pharaoh would harden his heart. The first two or three times it shows Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But God, through judging him and bringing judgments upon him, he knew how Pharaoh would respond to those judgments. It's in those ways, that way, that's the way God hardened his heart. He brought judgments that he deserved upon him. He was the one that chose to become hardened, though. And he hardened his heart against God, and God showed his glory. But he raised Pharaoh up for those purposes because he wanted to say, hey, I want you to know who the true God. That was even a salvific move, even on behalf of a mixed multitude that leave, not just the Israelites, but many of the Egyptians came to know who the true God was. In fact, Pharaoh knew who he was at a certain point, and he actually said let him, he let him go, but then he reneged, man, and, and he went after 
he went after uh, Moses and 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 the the, Israel, the, the Hebrews. So I think it's interesting. Uh, so the counterfactual knowledge and and to the idea of middle knowledge, you know, and I do believe obviously that we believe God's omniscient, so He knows everything that could or would be. Obviously, did He survey it all? That's my only question. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that in the world that we live in, He is a master chess player. So uh, God knows He's going to use the evil of, for instance, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and you know the Herodians and the Hellenists and all these guys. He's going to use the system, you know, Pilate and so forth, Rome. He's going to use what men mean for evil for good. That's what our God does. And he's even going to say, hey, Jesus prays all night long. In the morning, he rises up after praying all night long and picks his apostles. He didn't accidentally pick Judas. He knew that Judas would be the kind of guy who would betray him and God would use this. So to me, it shows you how brilliant God is. It shows you how wise he is. He says, you know what? I'm going to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the people, right? To pay for the sins of the, pay for the, sins of the world. But you know what? This is the perfect guy to plug in at this area because he's going to abuse the grace that I'm showing him. And I'm going to end up on the cross this way through other means as well. I'm also going to give people opportunity. I'm going to have Pilate, have a, his wife have a dream. He's going to know I'm innocent. And I'm going to have Pilate's wife have a dream saying, don't do it. But I'm going to allow that to happen to show that he was still culpable because even after being warned, he still did it, tried to wash his hands, but there was still blood on his hands. So it's just magnificent. But even the evil people, people that are set in regard to evil positions, we just talked about God according to chapter, I love 17. You want you want an answer, James White, in the scripture from where the apostles taught, you know, uh, th- this kind of freedom to receive the gospel and so forth. And uh, where, you know, they, that's one great answer. But also with regard to setting whether it's, you mentioned, since you mentioned, um, you know, Jacob and Esau, and since you mentioned uh, Pharaoh, uh, since I mentioned Judas, just think, it's Psalm 73. The psalmist goes in there, he's like, why are the evil prospering? You know, the Bible says in the book mm, of Proverbs, don't, yeah. don't, don't envy, you know, the, the, the rich or the, don't envy the wicked, right? Well, he's actually envying the wicked. He says, I almost slipped. He almost fell away. Until he went in the, because he's seen them just, they're just, they seem so blessed. The evil, the wicked, yeah. they seem so blessed. What am I, it doesn't fat, make sense. Everything's good, yeah. yeah, I almost slipped. I almost fell away. But he says, but then I went to the sanctuary. And let's, guess what he saw? Listen to this. Psalm 73, verses 16 through 18. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now he's going to see the big picture. And this is a big picture show right now. I'm trying to look at the big picture. Then I perceived their end. He saw the big picture. He saw their end, the end of the wicked. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. That's heavy because the unrepentant wicked. Surely you set them in slippery places. In other words, you take the unrepentant wicked and you put them over here. And he thinks he's just living it up and he slips and he's destroyed. So in our viewpoint, God knows how everybody's going to respond. And he plugs people in different places at different times that they would seek and know, the, know God. But guess what? He's sovereign. So if they reject him, okay, they spurn his grace. They says, okay, guess what? I've created you, the wicked, even for destruction. So I know that you're going to choose this and because you choose it. And you say, some can say, well, then God created them even knowing that they choose evil. Yeah, we don't disagree with that. That's biblical. So God has a, a, a purpose to achieve. He won't tempt anyone to do evil. So he allows evil people to exist and reject his love and not choose him. And then he allows those evil people to be used by Satan to tempt other people because people can choose who they're going to be because God wants a bride for eternity that authentically loves him and responds and reciprocates his love that he can show his grace to for all eternity because then you have the best love story into all eternity with this eternal bride. That's the, and to me, that's huge. And, and, and to me, that shows the big picture. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. 
If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.